Welcome to the Church in the Graveyard podcast. The book of Romans is truly one of the high peaks of the Bible. It is an intimidating mountain to climb, but the view from the top is well worth it. In the first four chapters, we hear that all have sinned, but the Apostle Paul takes us to the heart of why Jesus is such good news. We discover that his gospel changes everything about how we see the world. It means peace, it promises holiness, it beckons us to freedom, and it calls for love. For more information and audio content, please visit us at neac.com.au. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself on the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and who follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But honor, glory, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile for God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Hello again. Uh, Let's pray as we come to God's word. You, O God, are strong. You, O Lord, are loving. Please speak to us and enable us to hear you this evening, that we may know your strength and your love more deeply. Amen. Well, I don't know if you were with us at church last week, uh, but if you were, uh, you'll know that it wasn't a particularly pleasant sermon. Uh, If you weren't, just 
cast your eye over the second half of chapter 1 of Romans and you'll get a sense of why that might have been. Uh, We saw Paul announce God's judgment on the sinfulness of the world. In the second half of Romans 1, Paul paints this horrible picture of humanity in rebellion against God and how it means that people are without excuse and stand under God's condemnation. Now, I don't know what your reactions were to this passage and to our discussion last week, but it's very possible that you may have felt angered. Angered at the judgmentalism of Christians. The way Christians are always talking about sin and wickedness. And let's be honest, getting stuck into people about sex. Well, if that's you, can I just say, I'm very glad you made it back this week. Because in Romans chapter 2, Paul does something incredibly important. He suddenly turns the spotlight around. He doesn't abandon what he said, but he turns the spotlight around and shines it back into the eyes of the one who's been pointing it. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. It would be great to have that passage open before you. It's page 1113. This is an incredibly important turning point, you see. And one, it, it makes the difference between genuine Christianity, which is radical and powerful, and various versions of Christian religion, which are at best boring and at worst wicked hypocrisy. What happens here in chapter 2, you see, is that Paul takes a radical step in which he shows that though it might be easy to point fingers at the sinful world out there, the religious world stands no less under the condemnation of God and for exactly the same reasons. This part of Paul's argument is so important that he actually takes much longer to spell it out than he does on the sinfulness of the world generally. I don't know if you noticed that. Whole of chapter 2. And we're therefore going to take two weeks to look at it. Today we'll look at verses 1 to 16. Next week we'll look at the second half of the chapter. And what we'll see in these passages, I hope, is that the reality of the judgment of God smashes our religious complacency and forces our eyes open to our pride. But what we'll also see, I hope, is that in giving up our illusions lies salvation. So can I invite you then to look with me at Romans chapter 2 from verse 1. There is a sermon outline uh, that you probably got on your way in. If you didn't, it doesn't make much difference, but there it is. I'm going to work through the section 1. I'm going to work through the passage and help us understand it. And then section two, I'm going to think about what it says to us today. Romans chapter two, verse one. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Who's Paul talking to here? Uh, Who is this you? He's using a style of writing in which he has a kind of argument with an imaginary opponent. And in the first instance, these imaginary opponents were pious Jews. Uh, It's not anti-Semitism. Paul himself was a Jew, and he followed Jesus, 
the Jewish Lord. So, not anti-Semitism. As we'll see, half the point of Romans is to show that God has not given up on the Jews and loves them. And yet, in this argument, Paul is particularly thinking about his Jewish contemporaries. We'll see this come out more clearly in verse 17 next week, but you can have a look there if you want. That said, his arguments are not restricted. Their relevance is not just for the Jews of his day. Um, It's much wider than that. But it is helpful to understand that in the first instance, he would have been thinking of Jews. Uh, The world of chapter 1, you see, is the Gentile world from the Jews' perspective. The criticism of idolatry, the particular sins that Paul focuses on, all of these were judgments that a Jew could be expected to agree with. But now Paul turns this agreement around into a criticism and he points it back on his opponent. You agree with all this that I've been saying, he says? Yes, you agree with this? Then you're guilty. Why? End of verse 1. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. In verses 2 to 3, he makes the logic of what he's saying plain. Have a look at it there. Now, we know that God's judgment, he says, against those who do such things is based on truth. We know he's saying, you and I, that the judgment we've just described, we know it's just. This is a statement directed to religious Jews who are familiar with the standards laid out in God's word in the Old Testament and take them as truth. But of course, it also therefore speaks directly to those of us, particularly those of us who are Christians and who know our Bibles, who can affirm what he said in chapter 1, that we know God's judgment is in line with the truth. Well then, he says, verse 3, when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? You stand under God's judgment, says Paul, because you don't just do what's wrong, you do it and you know it's wrong. You know the standard of God's judgment. You know that it's right and yet you still do the same things. Paul's target here is arrogant religious hypocrisy. The attitude of the person who somehow just assumes that because they're on God's team, they don't have to worry. And so they're not troubled by their own hypocrisy, by the way they do things in their own life that are exactly what they believe other people will be judged for. Now, this is a very powerful criticism of religion, and we're actually going to take more time on it next week. Uh, to think about what this means and and what what it actually looks like, this doing the same things. For now, though, Paul is just keen to establish exactly why this means that those who pass judgment are equally guilty. And the deep problem, you see, is the problem of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, great German Christian hero, what he called cheap grace that is, of a knowledge of God's generosity that doesn't have any real effect on your life. Look at verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? 
To be aware of God's grace, you see, without it changing your life, without repentance. That's what repentance here means, a genuine change of heart and life. That is an abomination, which is the Bible's word for something really bad and ugly. It is contempt for God's generosity. It's a slap in the face to the one who gives the gift. And it will not turn out well. Verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath on the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Cheap grace. That is, taking God's grace for granted and not being moved to repentance will be fatal. It represents a hardness of heart that will bring about the wrath of God. Do you notice how many more times... Paul talks about the wrath of God here. Just so intensely does he want to get this point across. And he says this is true for a very simple reason. God will judge our lives without showing favoritism. This is what he stresses in verses 6 to 11. Have a look at it with me. It's very important. Verse 6, God will give to each person according to what he has done. It's the last line of Psalm 62, which was our Old Testament reading. But it was a stock standard idea of the Old Testament. Verse 7, to those who by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Paul's point is pretty simple. God will judge our works without preferential treatment. At the end of the day, we face a judgment with the same standard for everyone alike, the doing of good or the doing of evil. There is an eerie simplicity to this standard of judgment. Paul describes, on the one hand, that it's about what we're looking toward and focused upon. It's a matter of either persistently seeking the things of heaven or of selfishly rejecting the truth and looking to yourself and embracing injustice. On the other hand, it's about the final content of our life's work. Is it good or evil? The words for good and evil in verses 9 and 10 are actually singular. It's like Paul saying it's a question of whether one's life's work is a good work or an evil work. And this standard applies to all alike. There is a kind of order, Jew first, Gentile second, but that's because, and that's because God has graciously dealt with the world in that way. He chose the Jews with Abraham, and that's not going to be forgotten, and yet that order... Jew first, Gentile second, makes no difference whatsoever when it comes to the basis on which people will stand or fall. Those who have persistently pursued good and looked to eternity will be given eternal life. Those who have ignored and dispensed with the truth and looked to themselves will experience terrible condemnation. The wrath and anger of God, when Paul bothers to use synonyms, you know, wrath and anger, wrath and fury. 
He wants us to know that God's wrath is not just like a technical term that we can explain away with some more, you know, pleasant ideas. No, he is actually talking about the fury of God. It's a terrifying thought. It should be. In verses 12 to 16, then, he expands this point about the common standard of judgment by talking about the law. Now, just to give you a heads up where we're going, this is the first of a series of discussions, the rest of which we'll look at next week, in which Paul's directly engaging with issues of kind of Jewish religion. Uh, The law is the Old Testament law, the heart of Jewish faith. And his point here uh, is, again, fairly simple. His point is that because God's judgment is finally about works, the question of whether or not you have the law is not actually, at the end of the day, that important. Because the issue is ultimately what, not what you know, but what you actually do. Verse 12, have a look at it there. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now, Paul goes on in verses 14 and 15 to illustrate this point by discussing Gentiles. Now, these verses, you may know, have been confusing to many people over the ages. And there are odd things about them, as we'll see. But Paul's fundamental point is, again, fairly straightforward. He wants to show that the moral content of the law is not restricted to those who actually have the law, that is, the Jews. So that at one level, Gentiles are actually in the same boat as the Jews when it comes to the final judgment. Namely, what have you actually done? Let me paraphrase verse 14 there. If Gentiles, who don't actually have the law... If they still do what the law requires, which obviously they do sometimes, not every Gentile, for example, is a murderer. Well, then they show that they don't actually, though they don't actually have the law, they can still be judged by its standards. Their consciences demonstrate that they are not completely in the dark in terms of what is right and wrong. And that their consciences accuse them or even perhaps defend them shows that they too will stand or fall at the judgment on the same basis as those who have the law, namely, whether they actually do what God requires. There is, though, something curious about the way Paul puts these verses, and we need to just take a little aside to talk about it. Now, this is not the main point of the sermon, so if you kind of get a little confused at this point, don't worry. It'll be all right. I'll come back to the main point. But the curious thing is worth noticing, and it is this. Paul describes these Gentiles in a way that to a Jew would have been provocative. First, the mention of some Gentiles somehow having a defense at the judgment is startling. Really? Their thoughts defending them? What does he mean? Second... He says in verse 15, they show, that the right, sorry, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Did you see that in verse 15? Now, this would have been provocative. Why? 
Because that language very clearly echoes a really significant passage from the Old Testament. The passage is Jeremiah chapter 31. Um, If you'd like to turn to it, it it would be good, Uh, but you don't have to. I'll read it out. But Jeremiah 31 is on page 784. Jeremiah 31 from verse 31. Um, In this passage from verse 31 to 34, Jeremiah speaks of God's promise, actually God's speaking through Jeremiah, to make a new covenant with his people. Listen to what it says. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. And this is the key verse. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness. And remember their sins no more. This is a beautiful, beautiful, powerful promise of the new covenant. And the key phrase is there in verse 33 where it says, where God says, I will write my law on their hearts. So for Paul to speak of Gentiles who somehow have the law or or the requirement of the law written on their hearts was provocative because it was like he was hinting that Gentiles would somehow be included in this new covenant. It's almost as if he's saying, imagine though, imagine if this was the case. That would change things, wouldn't it? Now we'll see when we look at the second half of the chapter next week that this is not the only time Paul hints at the new covenant. He is, I believe, hinting that there are going to be some unexpected twists to God's judgment. And yet, here's back to the main thrust of this sermon, at this stage, these are no more than provocative hints. Paul doesn't explain any further what he's hinting at, nor has he said that this scenario, these Gentiles, is actually what will happen or that these people actually exist. In fact, in the wider flow of his argument, it's clear that this, and this is the really terrifying thing, that this is in and of itself impossible. See, the overall thrust of this passage with its conclusion in verse 16 that the day is coming when God will judge men's secrets is profoundly pessimistic. All who sin apart from the law, Paul says in verse 12, will also perish apart from the law. The purpose of Paul's argument is not to show how some special people will stand at the judgment but to sweep away the illusions of those who think they can. Those religious folk who are sure of their own standing and look down on the sin of others. The purpose of Paul's argument is to reveal that sin is actually a universal problem. To show that the neat categories we flatter ourselves with, the good and the bad, they fall apart on closer inspection because the fact is that Everyone, all of us, 
must one day face the righteous judgment of God and on that day a sense of self-righteousness or the fact that you're better than some others will offer no safety. Because that day will disclose the final truth of what we have actually done. And so Paul will reach the conclusion of his argument in chapter 3 by saying, all alike are under sin. Well, it's not much lighter than last week, is it? How are we going to respond then to this confronting part of God's word? We've seen, I've said that Paul's target in the first instance was the religious Jew. And yet we've got to remember that this letter was written to a Christian congregation. And as we've seen, and as I'm sure you know all too well, there are many points at which Christians and the church can fall into exactly these sins and failures. Exactly this kind of religious self-assurance and pride and complacency. So how will we who hear this passage today in a Christian church respond to it? Well, I think this passage should do two things to us. First, and most importantly, it should drive us to seek God's mercy. This passage is a word from God to us to break through the illusions that we so easily reassure ourselves with, and to show us the truth of our religious hypocrisy, how easily we fall into the sins described here. How quickly we turn a critical eye upon them out there without a thought for our own moral failings. We break the world up into goodies and baddies and feel good about ourselves. And yet, do we really give God what he deserves? Or do we too show contempt for the riches of his kindness? Do we cheapen it by thinking that it doesn't really matter whether our lives change, whether we are truly repenting? Coming to church can be a dangerous thing. I don't like to discourage people from doing it. It's obviously not in my interest. But in a way it is, because, you know, we so easily start to flatter ourselves that we're a bit different. And then our hearts become harder and more and more unwilling to be moved by God's goodness, more and more impermeable to his grace. Brothers and sisters, whether we are irreligious pagans or the most committed church members, The message of Romans is that we are all in terrible trouble because we will all one day face God's judgment and the truth about our lives will be revealed and who among us can really say that our life, pure and simple, has been a good work, seeking eternity? Can can you say that? But in that case, you and I face nothing less than hell, the wrath and anger of God. 
And so our only hope is for him to be merciful. For God to not give us what we deserve. To not repay us according to our sins. We talk about this in church all the time, yet it's passages like this that show us what we have to mean. See, we need, we actually need God to give us what we don't have a right to. For him to forgive us. And it is the central purpose of Romans to show that God has done this. We're not actually at this point in the letter yet, and yet I cannot leave this sermon at this point. Just, if you would, turn over the page to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Let me give you a glimpse of where we're going. It's crucial. Verse 23 of Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And then just look at the opposite page, chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, to see the meaning of this spelled out a little more, where Paul quotes the Psalms because they sum up his point so perfectly. And he says, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. That is the gospel that this passage must drive us to. Brothers and sisters, I beg you, if you have never really reckoned with the reality of judgment, if you have never really understood that you need to be forgiven, or if you've forgotten that, or if you are complacently trusting in your religious activities and membership, or the fact that you're not like them out there, Please let this word wake you up and drive you to seek God's mercy in Jesus Christ because it is there to be had. Well, that's the first and the main thing this passage should do to us. It should drive us to seek God's mercy and we could stop there. It would probably be a better sermon if I did, but I think we ought to go on to say a further thing that this passage should do to those of us who are Christians. It should drive us to repentance. Repentance, that is to a genuine turning around of our hearts and our lives. Why repentance? That is, why should this passage actually lead us to want to change our lives as well? Well, unfortunately, things are going to get a little bit involved here, but there you go, right at the end. But the thing is, those of us who read this passage as Christians, right, we know what comes after it, what we've just talked about. In Romans, that is that although we fall short of what we ought to be, through Jesus there is justification. Through faith in him and his death for us, we are put in the right with God so that we no longer fall under his wrath. And that completely changes the way we think about God's judgment because to be justified is to have received God's judgment already. That's what it means. It means to have, ju to have been judged 
to be in the right. That's why Paul will go on to say in Romans chapter 8, he will say, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not now, not ever. The thing is, though, the funny thing is, the Bible's never quite, doesn't quite end up saying what you expect it to. The funny thing is, that wonderful fact doesn't mean Christians don't face God's judgment at all. It might seem like that must be the case, but it is not. Did you notice in verse 16 of chapter 2, Paul says that God will judge our secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. You see, the final judgment is not something you just have to think about before you hear the gospel. And then after you hear it, you can forget about it. Later in Romans, in chapter 14, Paul will actually say, this time talking straight to Christians. If you want to go, it's Romans chapter 14, verses 10 to 12. He'll say, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. And each of us will give an account of himself to God. There's no clearer statement. So the gospel doesn't mean you just throw out the final judgment. But of course it does change it. Changes it completely. It means we now face it with confidence because of Jesus, because we know that we have been forgiven and justified already through Jesus. We actually see this confidence in the same passage in Romans chapter 14, in verse 4, where Paul calls his readers not to judge one another. Listen to what he says. Who are you, he says, to judge someone else's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. See that? That's the difference. We can be confident, those of us who know our sins have been forgiven through Jesus, we can be confident that we will stand at the judgment because we stand now before our master who died for us to justify us and he will make us stand. But, and and this is the crucial point, surely... That means it is impossible that those of us who know Jesus as our master can be complacent and arrogant in the way described in Romans chapter 2. We cannot, we cannot be content to let this passage stay true of us. We cannot be content to be people for whom God's kindness does not lead to repentance because if that ought to be true of the pious Jew that God's kindness should lead to repentance, then how much more should it be true of us? We who have been shown an infinite kindness, who have been loved beyond imagining in the gift of his son, his only beloved son, how can we ever possibly treat that kindness with contempt? It must lead us to repentance. In fact, if it doesn't, then we cannot ever have truly encountered it. And this, you see, this is the great paradox of genuine, radical Christianity. 
the key to true religion, to genuine repentance, the key, we, we can even risk saying, the key to persistence in a good work described here in chapter 2 in a funny way is found in coming to see yourself as guilty of failing to do it and receiving justification by faith in Jesus and allowing that great kindness of God to lead you to repentance. That is also, I think, why Paul drops these curious hints in verses 14 to 15 and in our passage next week of Gentiles who will somehow stand at the judgment. Because although he can't clearly say it yet, he's looking forward to those who justified by God's grace through faith and apart from works, will actually stand at the judgment of their works because they are in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let us let this passage destroy our illusions. The illusion that we have any hope at all apart from the mercy of God but also the illusion that his mercy can leave us unchanged. Let us hear the reminder in this passage of our desperate need for God's mercy, for Jesus to save us, and let that mercy lead us to repentance from the phony religious self-righteousness we see condemned here. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know that in our own strength and on our own merits, we cannot possibly hope to stand at the judgment. Oh Lord, that is a terrifying thought, but we pray that you would not let us close our eyes to it. But we thank you so much for our Lord Jesus Christ, who died to save us, and to justify we who are ungodly. And we ask, please, that that great kindness would free us to repent from the kind of failings we see described here. So that on the last day, we would not be this kind of people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.